tested by fire may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ when we see him. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. And then it was revealed. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, church, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And these things into which angels long to look. Therefore, therefore, because of this great salvation, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. So, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, he says this, church, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. All flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord, what? Remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So, put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And like newborn infants, long there's the command, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation if indeed you've tasted that the Lord is good. And as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stone, you're being built up into a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, look, I'm laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him, that's Jesus, will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who don't believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you 
You church believers, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you're God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain. Abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against the soul and keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but live as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Servants. Be subject to your masters, probably best analogy, employee to employers, with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust, for this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. And then listen about our Savior. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins and his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let me pray. Father, your word is sufficient. It is beautiful. And even if we only had these two chapters to read them over and over every day of our lives, we would never be able to mine the depths of the realities of Christ. And yet you've given us these two chapters that lead into three more chapters. You've given us this book that sits in the midst of a New Testament, and you've given us a New Testament that sits in an entire canon where you have revealed yourself to us, your word, your word speaking to us. So now, Father... Cause your word to change us, to unite us, to fill us with love and to make us loving. We pray this in Christ's glorious name. Amen. Amen. In some senses, we could be done. I do want to teach a little bit on chapters 1 and 2. I believe that's faithful. And so, I talked to a couple of teachers this week, those who are kind of preparing for school. And they're overwhelmed, to say the least. Coming back to school, teaching, preparing online, many considering how to educate their own kids while they're preparing to educate other children, it's just a lot. Everything felt hard to them. 
One said this, I just wish that there was one front of my life where things were not hard. (laughs) And I felt like this sounds like the phrase that could summarize almost all of our lives. It feels like every front, there's some difficulty that hits us. Everyone is feeling disjointed. Pandemic, cultural pressures, tense disagreements, polarizing social media, election pressures. Heck, there was even an earthquake last week, right? I mean, like, where are we? What is going on? And we have said when COVID hit, all of this is to wake people up. We got to be awake. Our God is calling us to repent and to fall on our face before him and to trust him with our very lives. These things are not just accidental. It's not one on top of another by chance. Our sovereign God is shaking you and me and our world to pay attention to Him. And Peter reminds the reader in the very first verse, and he also says it in the middle of chapter 1 and he says it in the middle of chapter 2, we are exiles. What's that mean? Don't be surprised that the world is dying and breaking. This is not your home. This is not home. And any of us who are trying to make it home are on the wrong mission. A mission that will let us down. It will deeply discourage us because we are meant to be just passing through. Heaven is our home. No country is home. No government leader is Savior. No movement or person is the Messiah. We've got Jesus. And He has given us His Word. He has our allegiance. And Peter, writing to Christians suffering under Roman persecution, probably under Nero. And if you know much about Nero at all, there's not... He's much worse than the American government or any leader that you despise. And he's writing to them. And they're confused. They're discouraged. Because they're suffering for their faith. They're trying to walk out faithfulness and things seem to be getting harder. If you understand Nero, there was a fire in Rome and he strategically blamed the Christians for it. Why is this happening, God? We're exiles. But Peter says something really interesting, similar to... (coughs) Excuse me. I don't know where that came from. (coughs) Similarly to what we said last week in 2 Timothy. Peter writes to them to finish strong. And part of finishing strong is not only remembering we are exiles, but focusing on the greatness of Jesus. And so, he wants us to remember there is someone greater than disease and pandemic and the difficulties of our jobs and the difficulties of our marriages or the difficulties of our roommates or the difficulties of the decisions in front of us. There's someone greater. And Peter's point is our world is dying, ravaged by sin, We as exiles must endure, love largely, but above all, communicate that we have a living hope in Christ. A living hope in Christ. 
This is why as Christians, we cannot be a part of the Chicken Little narrative. Anybody read the fable Chicken Little? Chicken Little goes through, gets hit on the head with an acorn, and is convinced the sky is falling. Then takes this pessimistic message that is a lie and goes and spreads it all out to everyone else. And depending on different ways that the, the fable ends, ends up dying. My point is this. Christians cannot be part of communicating a narrative that is hopeless. Because in Christ there's hope. It's a false narrative to walk around with a hopeless narrative. Because in Christ, there's hope. Christ has been raised from the dead. So Peter lays out these three realities. To strengthen the church, to finish strong amidst suffering. One, rejoice in your salvation. Two, live empowered for obedience. And three, live with Christ in view. Let's look at the first one. Rejoice in your salvation. Last week, we talked about that the suffering of the church, as I reiterated a conversation that I have with my dear brother Tim Kane in San Diego, where he so encouraged me that the suffering of the Christian church is not just the imprisonment and not just the physical pain, but many times the suffering of walking in obedience to Christ is the suffering of a broken heart. People that you love and pour into and yet get hurt by. This suffering of a broken heart, however, is not the only lot for the Christian. Paul is able to describe something, I believe it's in 2 Corinthians, when he says, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. The lot for the Christian is that on the road of walking in faithfulness to the gospel, you will collide and experience with a broken heart. However, Peter is saying to these broken-hearted Christians, that's not the only lot you have. He's saying, rejoice. Joy is something that is yours in Christ. It's something that's yours. Where do we see that? Well, as you get all the way down to verse 6 in chapter 1, look at what he says. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you grieved with various trials, he said, okay, trials are coming, but in this you rejoice. What is the this? It's everything above it. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's what we rejoice in. We rejoice that his salvation is real and tangible. The hope won't put us to shame. But you know the battle of the mind and the heart, don't you? I do. I feel it. I'm not always walking around in joy. Sometimes, sadly, I must repent of it. I'm a means in my home of tearing down joy, right? Because I'm frustrated. We're all there at different times. The battle is, oh, work is too much. Kids' schooling is overwhelming. Decisions are too difficult. Marriage is so hard. COVID is scary. The government is overreaching or underperforming. Culture is threatening faithfulness. All of this just waves over us, and it's the narrative, it's the voice that's just plugging in here. So why not be in despair? That's where we go. That's where neutral usually shifts us. 
But these can be true things. Or they can be exaggerated things. Or they could be how you feel. But Peter's point is this. His point is, do not let them rob you of your joy in Christ. Do not let them rob you of your joy in Christ. We need a new narrative. 1 Peter chapter 1. He has, if you're a Christian, He has taken your dead heart and caused you to see. He has made your eyes see and your heart want Christ. He's made you alive when you were dead. Rejoice. He's giving us a living hope. It's not a dead hope. Our Savior is not still dead. Our Savior is alive, resurrected, and He conquered our greatest fear, which is death. There's a lot to rejoice over. And He's done that to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and God is keeping it for us. It's a guarantee that's worth rejoicing over. And even suffering, He says in chapter 1, is refining us making us stronger so that we look more like Jesus. Friends, what do we have to rejoice over? I got a list. I'm forgiven. I'm covered in His righteousness. I'm accepted and loved. I'm empowered by His Spirit. And let me just shift it from I to we. We're being made more like Jesus every day and therefore growing in great capacity for joy. We are confident that He hears us. He's doing what is best for us. He's working all things for our good. He satisfies the desire of every living thing. He promises to lead us beside the still waters. His gospel sustains us and is powerful enough coming out of my mouth or on the pages of Scripture to change hearts through sinners like us. He has conquered death. He will come again. Our hope will not be put to shame. Just as when I was in my sin, He came to me and reconciled me to Himself. One day He's going to come again, make all things new. We'll be with Him forever in a new heavens and a new earth. This is a great salvation. And He says, when you're struggling with discouragement, reflect there. Reflect there. Write it down. Put it on post-it notes. Smack it all over your house. Make it pretty art. I don't care. Remember the great salvation of our God. You won't neutrally go there and that little flame that God has placed in your heart, if you're not fanning it into flame with His Word, no wonder the flame seems to be so small. Pour gas on it. Put God's Word all over your soul because this salvation is so great. He says in verse 12, angels long to see what we experience now and will experience one day. They're jealous over what we have in Christ. I was reading a book by Kevin DeYoung. It was called Just Do Something. I've mentioned it a few times in previous sermons. And he highlighted 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 16 through 18. The book is about how you discern God's will, like How do I know what's right to do? All these kind of things. And one of his points was, okay, well, here's a verse that talks about God's will. It says this, rejoice always, pray continually, and give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. And he just simply said this, are you doing that? Are you rejoicing always 
and continually praying and giving thanks in all circumstances? And he simply said, well, you should be. And it like struck me. It was like, I think I had relegated these verses to like the really mature or, you know, the, the decent days when I'm walking a little closer to the Lord. And he's like, no, stop making the excuses. This is what is ours in Christ Jesus. Rejoice always. What? Yes. Because you have a great salvation. Pray continually. Because you're desperate and God is not. And give thanks in everything. Isn't it remarkable that Paul even says in Philippians that we should give thanks in all of our prayers and that's how the peace of God covers us, our hearts and our minds. This is the will of God for us. So I ask you, are you rejoicing? It's not optional. It's not for the better Christians. It's for the child of God. So I invite you. I invite you into the limping along journey that I'm on that joy is not just for then, it's for now. Because Christ is enough. Sufferer, grab hold of joy. Grip it. Remember Christ and His salvation. I'm reading this book called The Happy Christian by a man named David Murray. And he puts forward a, just how do you fight for joy in this crazy world in which we're in. And I felt like the chapter titles alone were instructive. So I want to give you a few of them. Here are a few. He, do, he does them in forms of math equations, which all of a sudden might make you just want to shut down. But fact is greater than feeling. You remember that? The joy level begins to rise. The facts of Scripture are greater than the feelings of our heart. Good news is greater than bad news. The Gospel is greater than any bad news we could hear. And also, the fact that God is working on your and my heart. Good news. Greater than bad news. Christ is greater than Christians. And he's saying that for those who feel like they've been hurt by the church or they have some trauma by difficult people. There, there's this sense of like, Christ is better. You remember that? The waters of joy begin to rise. Future is greater than the past. Your past sins, past hurt, the promises of Christ in the future are greater. Therefore, you focus on that, the joy rises. Everywhere grace is greater than everywhere sin. Hear that, cynics. Hear that, skeptics. Those who really feed on focusing on the negative, everywhere grace is greater. Giving is greater than getting. This sense of our resources are not our own. Let's give away. You want to find and experience joy? Let's be generous. Joy in Christ is ours to be had. So Christian, he encourages us. Don't be downcast. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. And so, I encourage you. Because some of our joy, some of our joy is not only because of the pain and badness outside of us, some of, our, some of our loss of joy. Some of our loss of joy is not just because, just because of the pain and badness outside of us. Some of it is because of the pain and badness inside of us. 
and John Bunyan to encourage us, to, to kind of fill us up with more gospel fuel to rejoice in. He expounds John 6.37. Here's a gospel promise for you. For those of you who are battling with self-condemnation, and that's ripping away your joy. John 6.37, he says this. All the, this is not Paul Bunyan, or not Paul Bunyan, John Bunyan. It's the guy who wrote Pilgrim's Progress, not the Acts guy. So, John 6.37. This is the scriptures. All that, Father, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. That's a promise. And John Bunyan ex- quotes this. Fallen, anxious sinners are limitless in their capacity to perceive reasons that Jesus would cast them out. So you, you follow, the verse says, he'll never cast you out, but sinful, anxious individuals can just constantly think up reasons why he would cast you out. We are factories of fresh resistance to Christ's love. Even when we run out of tangible reasons to be cast out, such as specific sins or failures, we tend to retain a vague sense, given enough time, Jesus will finally grow tired of us and hold us at arm's length. And Bunyan understands this. He knows we tend to deflect Christ's assurance. And so now he he kind of takes this and writes a dialogue between us and Jesus. Here we talk. No wait, we say cautiously, approaching Jesus. You don't understand. I've really messed up in all kinds of ways. And Jesus says, I know. I know. You know most of it, sure. Certainly more than what others see, but there's a perversity down inside of me that is hidden from everyone. And Jesus says, I know it all. Well, the thing is, it, it isn't just my past, it's my present too. And Jesus says, I understand. But I don't know if I can break free from this anytime soon. That's the only kind of person I'm here to help, Jesus says. You say, the burden is heavy and heavier all the time. Jesus says, then let me carry it. It's too much to bear. Not for me, Jesus says. You don't get it. My offenses aren't directed towards others. They're against you, God. Then I'm the one most suited to forgive them, Jesus says. But the more of the ugliness in me you discover, the sooner you'll get fed up with me. And he says to you, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Christian, the invitation for you is come. Come to a Savior who paid it all on the cross and He invites you to come to Him. And as you come to Him, there's a security that fuels your joy. Rejoice in your salvation. And that salvation will ultimately culminate when you see Him face to face. But where Peter goes next is how you live in the in-between. You've been rescued and His salvation is working in you. It's meant to work in you an obedient life until you see him face to face. And that's why the second idea is live empowered for obedience. Live empowered for obedience. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 14. This is where I get the idea. A summary phrase. He says, as obedient children. There is this assumption that if you have experienced this great salvation that he's highlighting in chapter 1, verses 1 to 12, 
then you will have a desire in your heart to be obedient. You will want to please your Savior. And so he says, as obedient children, don't be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. And then what you experience from chapter 1, verse 13, all the way through the end of chapter 2, are commands just kind of laid out at you. And I laid them up on the screen for you. Chapter 1, verse 13, set your hope fully on. It's a command. Chapter 1, verse 15, be holy. Set apart in how you live. 117, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. That means the whole time you're on this earth, fear the Lord. 122, he says, love one another by putting away malice, deceit, envy, hypocrisy, and all slander. Chapter 2, verse 2, long for Jesus and His Word. That's what he means when he says long for the pure spiritual milk of the Word. 2.11, abstain from the passions of the flesh. 2.12, keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles. 2.13 and 17, be submissive to every civil authority. That's my summary. 2.18, employees, be submissive to your employers. Command after command after command. Because there's an assumption those who've been changed by Jesus want to and will fight to live obedient lives. Lives that stand out as holy, set apart, different than the rest of the world. And so as we look at these commands, we are to set our hope fully on Christ. We are to be holy. We are to be fearful of God and walk in that fear over against the fear of everything else. 122, he says, love one another and put away this malice and any deceit that we might have and any jealousy and any expecting something from others that you're not expecting from yourself. This hypocrisy. And put away all slander, this misrepresentation of people. And as I was looking at these verses, this is crucial for our church. He says, love one another. Not an optional command. It's love one another. I think one way that we can love one another in these crazy, sometimes can even be divided times, is it's some lessons that I learned while I was in Minneapolis, Minnesota. I did some schooling up there, and while I was up there, I remember this lesson that was just drilled into my head. And it was this. If I cannot articulate someone else's position in such a way that if they're sitting right next to me, they believe I have fairly represented them and they would say, yes, that's what I believe, then I haven't done hard enough work in listening to my neighbor. But I remember how guilty I was. Like, I remember, like, I don't know if you know my whole journey, but like, I was at Bethlehem Baptist Church and um, the pastor there at the time was Pastor John Piper. And I literally remember, in all of my arrogance, sitting there. And I was so critical of his preaching. Probably one of the greatest preachers in history. <laughs> and I sat there, picking it apart. 
And I've had to repent since then. I told a brother that this week. I was like, I felt convicted because what I brought in was not a fairness, but a skepticism. And I'm not saying that to talk about how you listen to me. I genuinely am not. I'm talking about how you listen to one another. And if it applies to me, it applies to me. That's fine. But how we listen to one another, we've got to love one another. Slander comes when you don't represent one another fairly. And he says, put it away. It's hypocrisy. Put it away. But what happens when these commands start feeling really heavy? They feel overwhelming. Here's what Peter does that is brilliant, and it's how, if you've got eyes to see it, the gospel writers, or the, the, the New Testament does it all over the place. And actually, the entire Bible does. It's like leaving breadcrumbs. You know, if someone is trying to let you find them, you kind of drop these breadcrumbs, you've heard that figurative speech, drop these breadcrumbs so that then they can find their way to you. Here's what Peter does. He drops gospel breadcrumbs all throughout this. Every command that is given to us has a gospel breadcrumb attached to it so that you know you're not living an obedient life on your own. You're living an empowered life towards obedience. Your obedience is not contingent upon the burden of your shoulders. Your, your obedience is contingent upon a Christ who has already done everything for you and is in you to help you obey. Here's one key to your joy and one crucial aspect of what it means to live an obedient life. And it could be summarized like this. Done always precedes do. Can you say that with me? Done always precedes do. I remember talking to my youngest child. And I was in a cleaning the house mode. And when that happens, it was time to give some chores to everyone in my house. And so, hey, we need to do this. Hey, we need to do this. It's a, it's a little bit more of the drill sergeant approach at that point. And so it's like, okay, we got to do this. Let's clean this. So I was talking to my youngest, and I said, okay, son, we've got to do this. And you need to do this. And you need to do this. And so we were talking, and I'm, I'm down there with him, and we're working. And then so humble, so cute, he was like, Dad, you're stressing me out. <laughs> And I was like, this is great. This is great. But it was a moment. It was a moment to say, what does that mean? What does that mean to you? Why are you stressed? Because I'm not even sure he knows what the, mean, the word means. He's probably heard us say it, right? I'm stressed out. You're stressing me out. What does that mean? And it was, what if I forget something? What if I can't do it all? And here's what I did. I said, son, your daddy will never give you more than you can do. I'm not going to do that to you. And if it ever feels like too much, you need to know I'm not going to give you more than you can do. And if it ever gets to be more than you can do, I'm there. I'm, I'm gonna, I'll help you. And this is exactly what Jesus is doing through Peter here in this book. Because many times we feel overwhelmed in the obedience category, right? 
I'm either a failure in this massive list or I see all these things to do and I don't know how to do it. And what Peter does is he constantly says, yes, this is what you got to do, but look at what's been done for you because what's been done for you always precedes what you are to do. Done precedes do. The cross is, it is finished. And I am with you. So, look at chapter 1, verse 13. It says, set your hope fully. That's the command. On what? On the grace that will be brought to you when you see Jesus. Just focus on all the help that Jesus is going to give you. Focus on grace. Chapter 1, verse 15. He says, be holy. That's the command. But what's it attached to? Be holy because I'm holy, he says. He is holy. Therefore, he can work holiness in you. So be holy. Chapter 1, verse 17. He says, conduct yourselves with fear. But look at the gospel breadcrumb attached to it. Because you know that you were ransomed from your futile ways. There's a work that's been done. You're different. You're not the same. And you've been ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. And this plan was before the foundation of the world. But is just now revealed. And Christ has been raised from the dead. And He's been given glory. So your faith and hope are in God. Do you see all of that underneath the command of conduct yourselves with fear? It's a gospel breadcrumb. It's something to strengthen you. So when he says 122, love one another, he says, since you have been born again through the living and abiding Word of God. His Word is working in you obedience. That's what he's saying. You're not alone. Chapter 2, verse 2. Long for Jesus and His Word if you've tasted that the Lord is good. He's good. Taste and see that He's good. Abstain from the passions of the flesh and keep your conduct honorable among the Gentiles is preceded by 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10. You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Do you get the point? Every command given to you is a command that he will equip you to do every one and peter doesn't want you to forget the gospel on the way of path on the path of obedience we've got to be obedient but you're never alone this is the encouragement we've got to learn to spot in the entire bible this is how some theologians talk about it the indicative always precedes the imperative. What has been done, what is, precedes the command of this is what you must do. And what we have to do is we've got to get gospel-soaked, Christ-saturated eyes so that when we read the Scriptures, we're focusing in on what Christ has done. Therefore, every command has His Holy Spirit holding us up and the burden is not here. It's on Him. And when it's on Him, the joy level rises because you're not alone. Rejoice in your great salvation through Christ. And church, live empowered, obedient lives. It's not just obey. Obey 
Christ in the strength that He provides. He will never give you more than you can handle in Him. I would argue everything apart from Him is more than you can handle. He will never give you more than you can handle in Him. This is why He says, chapter 1, verse 13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Our hope has to be on grace. So this leads us to our last point. If we're to rejoice in God's great salvation and we're to live empowered, obedient lives, we're to live that empowered, obedient life with a view towards the end. Live with Christ in view. I was going to title this one, this point, live with the end in view. But the point of the end, that is, when we, quote, get to heaven or when we are part of the new heavens and the new earth, the point of that is Jesus. It's not just to get to a place, it's to get to a person. So what we're being commanded throughout the scriptures is live with Christ in view. Live with the end in view, but Christ is that end. And here's some verses in 1 Peter that if you're reading, this is, remember, these points are not just good ideas that I'm giving you. These points are coming from study of chapters 1 and 2. So the burden that you should have sitting in those chairs or sitting at home is, is this really borne out in chapters 1 and 2 of 1 Peter? And so I give you a few verses to say it's borne out in chapters 1 and 2 of 1 Peter. Look at 1 Peter 1, 4 to 5. He has saved us to an inheritance. This is the end. That's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. 1 Peter 1.7, that you may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. There he's saying your suffering is to make you ready for the end. 1 Peter 1.13, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you when you see Jesus face to face at his revelation. 1 Peter 2.12, that they may see your good deeds. Why do you live an obedient life among the world? So that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the last day when he comes again. He visits us, reveals himself to us. The end is about the revealing, the revealing of Christ. So this is why I said it's living with the end in view. Now, as he takes our lives and he says, live with the end in view, Peter is telling the suffering church to endure. Don't grow weary. You can rejoice in salvation. You can live an obedient life because I'm empowering you to do so. Live with the end in view. That's going to help you endure in the midst of suffering. And so we go to the end of chapter 2. And the end of chapter 2 is talking about submitting to civil authority or talking about employer, employees submitting to employers, and they're experiencing unjust suffering. That's the way that the Bible reads, not only to the good and the gentle, but also to the unjust. And verse 19 is where I want us to look in 1 Peter chapter 2 as we conclude. And he says this, For this is a gracious thing. When mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. 
So you see what he's doing. You're suffering. He wants you to be mindful of God. Yes, in the present to empower you, but also set your hope fully on the grace that will be yours when you see Jesus. So it's a gaze on God. I want you to be mindful of him while you're suffering unjustly. This is how you're going to endure. Look at verse 20. For what credit is it if, you, if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? Don't be found suffering because of sin. Because sin does bring you suffering. It brings us all suffering. He says, but when you do good, and that would be the commands that he's already shown us, when you do good and you suffer for it, you endure because you know this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. It's like there's this extra smile, there's this extra grace, there's this extra help. It's, he says, that's a beautiful thing. And then he goes on in verse 21. For to this you have been called, church. And this is why as we continue on in 1 Peter, don't be surprised when there are fiery trials. He's saying you should expect suffering. You should expect it. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered. He suffered physically. He suffered the broken heart. He suffered. Christ also suffered, leaving you an example so that you might follow in His steps. And then he paints this beautiful picture of a Savior who committed no sin, had no deceit in his mouth. And when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. And when he suffered, he did not threaten. And here's the phrase I want us to end on. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Church, how will we endure? As the suffering comes, as the dying world kind of crumbles around us, we will look at the example of Jesus and realize our largest task in this fight for joy here and setting our hope when we see Him is the continuing to entrust ourselves to the fairness and the goodness and the strength of our God. And this reminded me of where we were yet last week in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12 says this. Paul saying to Timothy, I am not ashamed because, and here's the literal translation, because I have put my trust in you. Because the one in whom I've put my trust in, I am convinced that he is able to guard my deposit until that day. So, I'm not ashamed because the one in whom I've put my trust, I'm convinced that he's able to guard what I have given to him. What is that? He's able to guard my life. He's able to guard my heart. He's able to guard everything about my life. I'm convinced He's able to do that. This is the fight for joy for us who are in Christ. And as we begin to dive into 1 Peter chapter 3, 4, and 5, I say let's be in it together. Reminding one another that He is worthy 
to guard our lives. He will guard our lives to the end. So continue entrusting yourself to him who judges justly. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you would grant your church joy by reflecting on such a great salvation that angels long to look into it. I ask that you would empower your people to be obedient in all that we do. That we would fight to be obedient and where we're not, we would repent and we would come to you because those who come to you, you will never cast out. I ask that the gospel breadcrumbs that are laced throughout all of the scriptures would encourage us that the battle for purity and gentleness and love are not battles of impossibility. But they are battles that were done, bought for on the cross and empowered for us by the Holy Spirit. Father, convince us of your work for us. And I do ask, O oh God, that even in the midst of current pain, difficulty, even suffering, that we would have the end in view, we would have Christ in view, and we would entrust ourselves to him while we await that last day. Father, do what we can't do. Help us, sustain us, strengthen us, unite us, fill us with love for you, for one another, and for this lost world. We pray this in Christ's glorious name. Amen.